we'll close your eyes, bow your heads, maybe just open your hands where you are to the Lord. And I, I don't want you to repeat after me in an audible voice, but just silently where you are, will you just offer up to God and say, God, feed me today. Ask God to nurture you. Ask God to reveal deeper meanings of the cross and the impact it has on our lives and on the world. I want you to take a moment and I want you to pray for people sitting in your section right now. Some you know, probably a lot you don't know. And I want you to ask for God to touch down in the broken hearts and those who are weak and those who may, maybe they don't know Jesus. Just ask God to touch one person in your section today and to draw them closer to Jesus. And God, for the words of my preaching today, this is not about my name, my reputation. Uh, It's not about me, God. May I be forgettable today so that you can be unforgettable. May the Holy Spirit touch down in our hearts today and draw us close to Jesus through the words of my preaching. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. There's a story that's told at the turn of the 20th century of uh, a grandmother who lived with her grandson. And one time their two-story house caught on fire and their grandmother passed away trying to get upstairs to save her young, small uh, grandson. And the crowds and neighbors gathered around this house. It was burning down and they could hear the cries of this grandson upstairs. So there was one man in the crowd who started running around the house trying to find a way to get upstairs. And he found an iron pipe and he climbed that pipe one hand over the other all the way to the top, went through a window and he came out with this young boy wrapped around his neck, came back down the pipe. And the story's told that weeks went by and there were no other relatives for this son. So there was a town hall meeting for who's going to have custody over this child. And and there were a lot of gracious, generous, wonderful people in this town who started coming up one after another. And a farmer came up and said, I own a lot of land and boys should have a lot of land to play on. And I would love to take him in. And then uh, a wealthy man came up and said, I've been blessed with a lot of money and I can provide this this young boy with a farm and with a good education. And even I the ability that for him to travel parts of the country and to see things. And, and other people stepped up. A teacher came up and said, I have a great library and I can provide him with a great education. And then the judge said, is there anyone else here? And there's someone who stood up at the back of the room and walked all the way to the front. And without saying a word, this man just pulled his hands out of his pockets and revealed these hands that had been scarred because he had climbed up this hot iron pipe. And this young boy just jumped into his arms. And without a word even having to be spoken, like this man received custody of this young child. Without a word being spoken, all he had to do was show these scars in his hands and reveal the love and what he went through to sacrifice his own life so that someone could have life. Uh, I've written about it in the past. We've talked about it. Uh, And um, why was Jesus raised with scars in his hands and scars in his feet? Why could he have not been raised from the dead completely whole? And it's because his scars were able to tell a story. His scars told a story of a sacrifice, of this moment uh, that we call Calvary and crucifixion and Friday. And over the next few weeks, we're going to call it Dark Friday. That there was a time in history when Jesus was nailed to a cross. And it has its impact for your life and for the world. And we're going to unpack the meaning of this over the next few weeks. 
But here's something Jesus was not very good at. And you've got to be careful if you ever say something that Jesus isn't very good at. Here's something Jesus was not very good at. He still isn't very good at this. He's never been good at being placed in categories. Because any category we try to place Jesus in, he breaks out of. Any category the church tries to put him in or a person tries to put him in, he breaks out of. Jesus doesn't do very well in categories of progressive or conservative or worship wars. Or, um, Jesus makes a, he, he's never, he didn't die on the cross to become a mascot, to become an idea or a bumper sticker. He doesn't do well in categories, but it didn't keep first century people or people today from trying to put him in some categories. He didn't fit well in the category of prophet because he did things like prophets would do and then he did some things that prophets wouldn't do. He didn't fit very well in a category of priest because there were things about Jesus' ministry that made him look like a priest but then things that didn't look like a priest when he would touch people with leprosy before he would heal them and things like that. Jesus, sometimes there were people from Nazareth who's like, man, he's just not Nazareth enough. Like he just, he doesn't fit well into whatever categories you want to put him in and there's one category that he did not fit well in into and it was a category of messiah because he was everything people needed in a messiah but he was not their expectation of a messiah and it was this that ended up getting him killed here's what jesus said in matthew chapter 16 okay it's not until matthew 16 that jesus begins talking about his own death so Jesus didn't come on the scene around the age of 30 in his public ministry and immediately start talking about the crucifixion and suffering and what it meant to die. All right, so later on in his ministry, closer toward the end, he starts telling people, telling his disciples, preparing them multiple times that, hey, we're on the way to Jerusalem, and I just need you to know when I get there, I'm not going to be taking over a kingdom like you think I'm going to be taking over a kingdom. I'm going there, and I'm going to die. Matthew 16, verse 21. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. If you underline or make notes in your Bible, it says Peter rebuked him. This is the same word Jesus would sometimes use to drive out demons. It's the same word Jesus would use to calm a storm. And, and I'm not suggesting Peter thought Jesus was demon-possessed, though he may have thought that at the time. Uh, he, he definitely thought Jesus was out of his mind. Like, maybe he's just so tired, he doesn't really know what he's talking about. He rebukes him, and, and however you want to think about the word, it's, it's strong, it's full of emotion, it's intense. Peter's trying to set Jesus right. And this is where Jesus is like, get behind me, Satan. Like, you don't have, a, you don't have in mind the plans of God. Um, and I know people have taught on this in the past, but here's the deal, all right? The disciples of Jesus wanted a kingdom without a cross because they couldn't see it any other way. They wanted a kingdom. They, they had in mind a Messiah who was going to come and set up a kingdom right. He was going to take over all the Roman Empire and, and take down emperors and rulers. He was going to set up a kingdom. They wanted a kingdom, but they didn't want a cross. Today, we often want the cross, but we don't want the kingdom. We want the benefits of the cross without the full allegiance to Jesus. We want the cross and what it means for us and that Jesus died for our sins without the one who died on the cross, calling him the king of our lives, giving him our full devotion, full allegiance. So here's what Jesus says in John 12 about himself. John 12, 31 and 32 says this. Now is the time for judgment 
on this world. And now the prince of this world will be driven out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Just take that, just take that phrase by phrase. And the power and impact of what Jesus says, just right there in two verses. That he's speaking to these people right before he's about to die. Just days before he's about to die on the cross. And what he says is, right now, right now, you're about to see judgment come upon this world. And right now, you're about to see the prince of this world, Satan, the enemy. You're about to see him driven out. And when I'm lifted up from the earth... I'm going to draw all people to myself. Like, this is so loaded, these two verses. Just this little bitty piece of what Jesus says. And here's what verse 33 says. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. So he didn't use this phrase about being lifted up to talk about resurrection or even the ascension. It's about Jesus. He's going to die on a cross. And as he hangs, here's, here's the power and the impact of what's going to come from this. We heard it this morning, but in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 17 and 18, Paul says this, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, not so you will be impressed with me, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The cross is a universal sign. Of Christianity. It has become, it is the universal sign. Anywhere in the world, that there are people, and maybe people have never heard of Christianity, and there are some parts of the world, I get it, they've never seen a cross. But most people who may not even believe in Jesus, when they see a cross, they know it's a, it's a universal sign of Christianity. And I don't even know what would even come in a close second. Maybe a fish? It's the universal sign. Uh, we hang crosses in our, we hang them in our homes. We wear them on our necks. I've talked to tattoo artists, and when they have Christians who come in, and once I'm at a Christian, something tattooed on their bodies, the cross is like the go-to. We, we wear them on our bodies. We, we wear them around our necks. We have them in our homes. We put bumper stickers on our cars. We hang them in our churches. I remember we hung these crosses back in the fall of 2008. I can't believe it's been that long. There was a sermon series I was doing on the Gospel of Luke. And we were talking around, uh, one day Kip and I were talking about ideas and just what are images we can place in front of the church. And we came up with this idea because I was doing a series at the time called Life Reframed, how we come together at the cross and, and Jesus reframes our lives and frames are where the stories of our lives. So we hung these crosses up here because the stories of our lives come together at the cross. So we asked the church to like donate some picture frames and we told you it would just be for a sermon series and then we will give them back to you. And we took them down after the sermon series. And Kip and I thought we were going to die. All right? Because there were some of you who I think were coming after our lives. Like, how dare you take them down? They look amazing. So we hung them back up. And 10 years later, they're still up there. We hang crosses in churches, in our homes, on our cars, everywhere. Why? So, so the next six to seven weeks, I want to take time for us to really think hard about this, because I know we can spout out things about what we believe about the cross and what the cross means to us, but if we wear this kind of stuff on our bodies and hang them in our homes, we better have a clear understanding, a better understanding of what the cross means, not just for me, what the cross means for the world. Because Jesus wasn't the only person who died on a cross. Tens of thousands of people died on crosses under the Roman Empire. This was an everyday thing for them. But he's the only one who came down from a cross to tell stories about what it was like to hang on a cross. Anyone else who died on a cross, that was the end of their story. It was the end of their lives, not Jesus. He died, came out of a grave, and still bears witness with his hands and with his side and with his feet of what it was like to hang and the impact of that. 
Now, when it comes to nicknames in life, I bet you've been nicknamed something before that you, you didn't really like the nickname. Um, you've been called things before you never, you never wanted to be called. Um, I, I grew up uh, in a town outside of Dallas, a, a city called Mesquite. And one of the first high schools in Mesquite, we had five high schools. One of them, their mascot was this, they were Skeeters. It was Mesquite Mosquitoes. That's who they are. That's what their mascot is, uh, Mesquite Skeeters. It just rhymes, so they ran with it, all right? I went to a middle school uh, in seventh grade is when we started middle school uh, in Mesquite, and there was a brand-new middle school that I went to in seventh grade. That The middle school was called Kimbrough. It was named after someone in our city. And uh, up until, like, almost the day before school started, they were going to be the Kimbrough Cougars, but there were some moms who wanted a different name for the school, a, a different mascot. So this group of moms thought it would be good to call it Kimbro Kangaroos, all right? So then there was this vote in our district of, should we call it Kimbro Cougars and Kimbro Kangaroos, all right? And thankfully, the Cougars still won out, but barely, all right? I would have been a kangaroo. Like, that just doesn't sound right. John the Baptist comes talking about Jesus in John 1.29, and here's what he says. The next day, John, this is very early in the Gospel of John. John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, blank, who takes away the sin of the world. Now, there are a lot of things you could place in that blank, right? Look, the Savior who has come to take away the sins of the world. The Lord, the Master, the Alpha, the Omega. So many things you could place in there, right? So many things that would have been true to Old Testament prophecies. And now, here's the deal. John the Baptist and Jesus, were, they were relatives. That, and I don't know if they kicked it growing up. I don't know how much they hung out. I don't know what that was like. Maybe they were in Jerusalem sometimes together. Maybe they weren't. But here's John the Baptist around the age of 30. And he sees Jesus when Jesus' public ministry is beginning. And of all things he could call him, he says, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. There was no Old Testament prophecy of the Messiah being the Lamb of God, though, being, though, though having a lamb and a sacrificial lamb was something that was so close to who Jews were. Like this was something they honored every single year that if you were a Jew, you went to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. This was a really big deal. You had to go to Jerusalem. So it would be like us on Thanksgiving that you couldn't celebrate it anywhere. You had to go to a certain place to celebrate it. Now, uh, if you're taking notes... I'm, I'm about to throw out some parallels between Jesus, the Lamb of God, and the Lamb of God, or, or the, the Passover Lamb. There are so many things that, that parallel and that are very much the same. And, and forgive me if I go too quick, reach out to me later on. I would love to talk to you uh, and share some of this with you, okay? Jesus was born in Bethlehem. And Bethlehem was the primary place where lambs were raised and where lambs were brought from for Passover. Kind of ironic, right? Born in Bethlehem, that's where most of the land, a lot of the lambs will come from. The Passover happened annually. It happened in the spring, and the Passover lamb was the main course. This was to celebrate every year. This has gone on for hundreds of years for Jews. Is that this was a way to celebrate how God had delivered them from Egypt and the Exodus. This was the biggest story of the Old Testament. It was central to their faith. That God rescued them from slavery. And he didn't, rescue them, he didn't only rescue them from something. He rescued them into something. Into a new kind of life. So it goes all the way back to Exodus and liberation from bondage. So Passover happened in Jerusalem. In fact, Jerusalem, six weeks prior to Passover, Jerusalem would get prepared for it. They would take six weeks where roads would be prepared. And they would dig new wells and they would, they would set up 
whatever first century restrooms look like. I don't know what first century porta potties were like, all right? But they set them up, okay? And the men were probably like, yeah, this is great. And the women were like, oh my goodness, really? Okay, special ovens were made for roasting lambs because a lot of lambs had to be roasted there. In the days of Jesus, Passover was about two things, all right? In the days of Jesus, Passover was about celebration because that was something it had always been for. There, there would be some somber moments in the Passover. But it was a, a celebratory event. They were celebrating how God had lifted them out of Egypt, out of bondage. Yet there was something else about Passover and Jesus' day for the Jews. It was about celebration, but it was also a time to express future hope for political release and freedom from Rome. That's big. In fact, along with expectation, uh, uh, this kind of expectation, all kind of false messiahs would often come uh, to surface around the Passover, that they would come to Jerusalem and try to claim that they were the ones that everyone was waiting for, but none of them seemed to survive, all right? But then there were some things that happened, like Jesus comes riding in on a donkey, comes riding in on a colt a few days before Passover, and people were shouting, they were singing songs. If you remember, they're shouting, Hosanna. Hosanna was actually a slogan for nationalistic zealots. They were people who wanted to form militia groups to, to take over Rome. It was this slogan for them. It was a cry for help. It was a cry for liberation. It was a cry for freedom. Palm branches meant a couple of things then. For some, it meant peace and love, yet for others, it was a sign of Jewish nationalism. So they're waving palm branches. There were people there, and I'm not saying this is what every single person meant when they're shouting out Hosanna and waving palm branches, but for some of them, it was, this is the one who's coming into Jerusalem to set, set us free. He is a military, and he is going to be a political leader. Four days before Passover is when the lambs would be brought into Jerusalem. Four days before this Passover is when Jesus came into Jerusalem. Because you didn't just get your lamb and buy it and then go take it and sacrifice it on the altar. You, for four days, it like became your lamb. It became part of the family. This was a big deal. Not only that, the command way back in the Old Testament it was when you get a lamb, it's supposed to be a lamb without any blemish. So you test the lamb, inspect the lamb, look over it. And the reason it was without any blemish, one of the main reasons was how easy would it be for people to take a lamb that was absolutely no good and just get rid of it? Like, what kind of sacrifice is that, you know? Like, hey, son, just go out there in the backyard and get that lamb that has a broken legs, a lamb that's clumsier than all the others. Let's get rid of that one. The, the, the command of God was we want you to get the very best. You bring before God the very best one. So they would test him. So right before the crucifixion, there are times where Jesus was tested by Pharisees, teachers of the law, Sadducees, where he was tested. Uh, at the Passover, you were supposed to remove your house from any form of yeast. Like, get rid of it. And Jesus goes through the temple, removing the temple of forms of yeast, turning over tables, the money changers. You see Jesus come into Jerusalem, and one thing Jesus does in Luke chapter 19, 41, is Jesus weeps over the city. And there are probably a number of different reasons why he was weeping. But he also knew that one of the reasons is that they were looking for a Messiah who was going to come and set up a kingdom. Yet his idea of kingdom and their idea of kingdom was not the same. He's weeping because expectations are wrong. Lambs on the day of the sacrifice, on the day of Passover, were brought for the sacrifice around 9 a.m. 
Now, Josephus goes on to tell stories. He, he was a first century historian that there were times when 250,000 lambs would be sacrificed in Jerusalem around the Passover. Can you imagine what the sound and smell was like for that many lambs to be brought into the city and slaughtered? The sight, the smell, the sound. Around 9 a.m., all the lambs would be brought in, and the, and the priests were lined up and ready. And it was at 9 a.m. on that Friday when Jesus was placed on a cross. Around 3 p.m. is when lambs would be slaughtered. A horn would blow, and around 3 p.m. is when Jesus breathed his last. All these parallels of how Jesus was the Lamb of God. And here's a phrase I want you to remember over the next six weeks. That at the cross, Jesus was the fulfillment of the plan of God. It's not that all the plans in the Old Testament didn't matter anymore. And now here's a new plan of God. It's the fulfillment of the plan of God. And the question that sometimes we ask is like, who put him there? Who put him there? Did, was it you? Was it me? Was it the Roman soldiers? Was it the Jewish priests, teachers of the law? Was it sin? Was it Satan? Was it God? Like, who put Jesus there? Why was he there? Why did he go so willingly? What is the impact of that event? John Stott says this, Before we can begin to see the cross as something done for us, leading us to faith and worship, we have to see, that, that we have to see it as something done by us, leading us to repentance. As we face the cross... We say to ourselves both, I did it, my sin sent him there, and he did it, his love to him there. His love, he did it, his love to him there. Here are a few things I want to talk about over the next few weeks. That how at the cross does the love of God come together with the sacrifice of Jesus to become the greatest force that the world has ever experienced? That at a time when Rome seemed to be the greatest force, it's the love of God and the sacrifice of Jesus that sent him there. Um, was it the love of God or the wrath of God that put Jesus on the cross? Because John 3.16 is, For God so loved the world that he sent his only son, yet sometimes our theology says differently. Sometimes our theology is the wrath of God. He was so angry with the world that he sent his son to die. I believe in the wrath of God. We sing about the wrath of God. One of the favorite songs we sing in this church is in Christ alone, where it talks about the wrath of God was satisfied. How was the wrath of God satisfied? Was it that the wrath of God was pointed to us? Was it that the wrath of God was pointed at Jesus? How does the wrath of God and love of God come together? I hope to talk about it over the next few weeks. One phrase you're going to hear me talk about a few times over the next few weeks is Christus Victor. It's the victory of Christ that there are those who have interpreted this event on that Friday as the day when on the cross, God in Christ won a great victory that the only way to defeat death and take out death was to take on death itself. And that's exactly what Jesus did. Uh, for many people, the only way that they have thought about the cross or for some have preached about the cross is the atonement theory. It's penal substitution or just a substitutionary or just atonement that Jesus atoned for our sins, which the Bible talks about this, that our sins had to be atoned for, that because of our sin, we, we can't save ourselves, so we have to die. So Jesus took our place so that we don't die. And because he took our place, now we have life in him and through him. And I believe in the atonement theory, and we're going to talk about it, but the atonement theory isn't the only way to think about the death of Jesus. It's not just your sins being atoned for. There's something seismic, enormous, something that all of creation benefits from. 
the Greek Orthodox, for years, the phrase they keep coming back to when they talk about the cross is that it is a prelude to the resurrection. So some of you grew up in churches where you heard a lot about the cross and not much about resurrection at all. And some of us have been in churches, and I admit, sometimes my preaching is like this, where we talk a lot more about resurrection and hope and life that comes from that and the light of the world that comes from that and not much about the cross. We live as resurrected people who still have to sit in amazement at everything that happened from the cross. Here's the phrase I keep coming back to. is at the cross. It was God's way of dealing with evil. So a couple of things we're going to talk about over the next few weeks is one, forgiveness of sins and what that means. Because forgiveness of sins is to be released from sin. You're forgiven some, from something and you're forgiven so that you can live into something else. And the second is the word rescue. Rescue is this word and this idea that goes all the way back to the book of Exodus. When God rescued his people from Israel and through the cross, he rescues us from sin and evil. N.T. Wright says this, The Messiah's crucifixion unveiled the very nature of God himself at work in generous self-giving love to overthrow all power structures by dealing with the sin that had given them their power. So in John 1, 35 and 37, Right after John the Baptist talks about Jesus being the Lamb of God, he comes back to this imagery. All right, so here's what he says in John uh, 1, 35 and 37. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. And when he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. So this is like back-to-back days. This is the phrase he comes to. And here's what really amazes me about verse 37. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Surely they already knew some things about Jesus, but it was something about what John the Baptist was pointing them to, the Lamb of God, that seems to be so appealing to them that that phrase alone causes this attraction, this curiosity, this devotion that we will follow this man right here, wherever, it, wherever he's leading us. There's a man who uh, grew up in Germany. His name was Nicholas von Zinzendorf. German nobleman, born in 1700, he died in 1760. And he's known, and most of the stories from his life is that he spent almost all of his life giving away all of his wealth and everything he had for the good of other people. He was so sold out for the gospel and for the mission of Jesus. And the reason why is that when he was 19 years old, he was uh, highly educated. And at 19, he was set on this tour to go to all the capital cities of Europe and to do this research. And as he did, he, one day he ended up walking into this, this like museum of art. He just came into this place where all this art was there. And he walked into one painting, and there was a painting of Jesus with a crown of thorns on his head. And Zinzendorf was so just struck by this image. And underneath this image of this crown of thorns on his head was this phrase, All this I did for thee. What hast thou done for me? For those of you who don't speak old English, all right? What it said was, all this I did for you. What have you done for me? And at 19, that image of Jesus with a crown of thorns and that phrase totally changes life. So here's my ask for you. Is the beginning today, will you take one step closer to the cross? Just one step. And, and for some of you, What you needed to understand is that Jesus is coming for all of you. 
He wants all of you. He wants to be the Lord of everything in your life. And Christ desires to change everything. And sometimes to get to the point where Jesus has everything, it begins with something. Sometimes it's us making a choice in our lives to give up something so that Jesus can become our everything. And now's the day to take a step to that. I want to ask the elders and prayer leaders, if you will, go to your places to receive people for prayer. And we invite people to come to the front if there's something you want to go public with or a way we can pray for you. If you want to make this the day where you confess Jesus as the Lord of your life and that you are baptized into Christ, we invite you to the front to come to Phil or Doyle who are up here. And you can see some other places in the room where we have women here to pray with women. We have some elders in the back. And they are here to bless you, to pray with you, to receive you. Any way they can be the presence of God and a voice of God for you today, that's why they are there. Can we stand together? And before we sing this song, I want to ask us to pray one more time. Let's stand together. And can we, uh, I just want to invite you to open your hands where you are. Open your hearts to the Lord. God, today, if I've said anything that has not honored your truth, your heart, your nature, your character... May it fall to the ground and not be remembered at all. But if I have spoken any word today that is true to who you are, may that word sink deep into our hearts. May it establish roots in us. May it mess with us. And may it bear great fruit throughout this week. God, may we become less so that you can become more. And I pray this to the power of your name. Amen.